grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to the show. We're doing an early show today, but it's kind of nice. Get off early, I can get off early tonight and do some other stuff for you guys. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you have a paranormal need or you think you might have a paranormal need, we can get to you. It may take us a while. California is a huge state, so... Don't fret, because we do have psychics on staff who can who can phone you and talk to you about what's going on, and, and in many cases, calm things down. Okay, that being said, I have a great show for you today. I remember as a kid, I'm not saying a kid, in my 20s, reading about the Rendlesham Forest UFO sightings. I remember reading that stuff, and I, and I, and I would grab every every newspaper article, every book I could find on it. And I was just so fascinated by it. And my guest tonight, Gary Hazeltine, actually experienced part of it. You know, actually did research on it and had his own UFO encounter. Okay, I'm going to let him tell you the story. I'll screw it up because I always do. What else is new, right? (laughs) The other thing to lay mention to is that I don't watch a lot of paranormal programs because of what I do, right? But the ones I do watch are the ones with the police and the fire department and EMTs and all that, because I figure as a reporter, you know, we're trained observers pretty much. Police officers are trained observers. EMT people are trained observers. Firemen are trained observers. So when you're getting those stories, even though they're on TV and they might be just juiced up a little more than they should be, you're still getting a good, clear story because it is police, it is law enforcement and and rescue personnel. So this is why I'm excited to have him on also because he has that that the directory going on of, of reports of, of, of UFOs from law enforcement. Okay. Anyway, if you're watching from Facebook today and you haven't done so already and you like what you see, please be sure to hit that follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, same thing. There's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, he's got a Sherlock Holmes hat on and he's got a magnifying glass and that is our mascot. If you click on him, the subscribe button will pop up. We've got more than 585 videos over on YouTube of this show, and I think you will find something that you like. I am a journalist. I get bored on one topic all the time, so I like to vary it. So we have health topics. We have, you know, current event topics over there. So I'm sure if you peruse, you'll find something you like. All right? In the meantime, if you like what you see today, again, be sure, the other instruction I have is be sure to give me a thumbs up, give me a heart, show me some love. Show me some love, and that goes for both YouTube and Facebook, and even Twitter, because we're broadcasting over there today as well. All right, so without further ado, I'm going to bring my guest in, and he can tell you about himself, because it's easier if, if, if he does that. Okay, here we go. Hello, sir. Hello, thank you for having me as a guest. Thank you for coming on. Can you tell us about you, sir? Okay, um... I'm 63, just turned 63. I have been a public UFO researcher since January 2002. 
I had a childhood sighting when I was 16 in my hometown of Scunthorpe. That created the seed for me to later become involved in active research. Uh, but before then, I had six years in the Royal Air Force Police. And then I went on to have a 24-year career in the UK British Transport Police. And the last 19 years of that was as a detective. Uh, and I was an advanced interviewer of suspects and witnesses. Um, and that basically involved murder, manslaughter, rape, that kind of thing. Very serious crime. And uh, that's basically, in, in a nutshell, my background very quickly. Um, tell me about the UFO studying when you were 16. And uh, I'm curious about that. Up until that time, I had no interest in the subject. Uh, it was, I think, August of 1976 in the UK. It was called the Long Hot Summer because it was a, it was a really exceptional summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was walking my then girlfriend home, um, which was approximately a mile, three quarters of a mile, mile from where I lived. And we were quite close to her home and we were walking along a long, narrow footpath. And on the left side, there was my high school fields. And on the right side uh, were an area which in the UK we call allotments where people grow their own vegetables. So a big vegetable patch where lots of people grow communal, communal kind of vegetables. And so at that point where we were walking, it was a long, narrow footpath, approximately 400 metres long. And we were perhaps 300 metres along that path. By then, we'd passed my high school, and we were then just with the fields on the left and the, the allotments on the right. And basically, it was a lovely summer's night. There was not a cloud in the sky. Stars were out. It's kind of rare in the UK to have a, a totally windless, lovely summer evening. And we were looking up at the stars just as we were walking forward. And then we noticed... Uh, uh, no distinct shape, a bright white light, but it was bigger than the background stars, much bigger, perhaps at a 60-degree angle uh, in front of us. And we watched it. And we At first, we just assumed it was a plane or something like that. But then as it, it passed by us, so if you can imagine there's a straight path ahead of you, and then this object went from right to left and in a sense, went beyond us to our left. As soon as we went behind the flight path, the whole area in the distance, i.e. all the housing, the electricity, there was a power grid failure behind the object's flight path. Cutting a long story short, we watched it, and it was moving very, very slowly and silently in the direction of where I lived. Now, at the time, as we were walking along that footpath, I was pushing my bicycle, and I said, I'm going to try to catch up with that light. So I asked my girlfriend, Dawn, my then girlfriend, to get on the crossbar. And two of us ride in uh, to the end of the alleyway. I turn right. Her house is approximately 200 meters from there. I dropped her at her house. And the whole area was totally without power. Everybody's scrambling around to get candles, etc. I literally dropped her off. <laughs> I then got back on the bike, raced as fast as I could, back down the same pathway, eventually went on to a long main road called Grange Lane South, which took it, took me towards my home. And when I was quite close to my home, 
there was a left-hand bend, a, a bend in the road to the left. And at that point there, I could see that the light and the power was still on, on the housing in the distance beyond that bend. So as I got to that bend, the power's still on. So I go from this darkness into the light. And I remember glancing over to my right shoulder and I and I saw that the light had managed to get ahead of the light because it was moving very slowly. And I was just slightly in front of it. I then raced around two corners, dropped my bike outside my house. And uh, I rushed inside. My parents were having a cup of tea, as English people do at night. And uh, so I'm assuming it's about 9, 9.30, something like that. And I said, come outside. I think there's going to be a, a power cut caused by this strange light. And unfortunately, they don't move. So I just rushed through the hall, into the kitchen, out the back door, back at the, to the bottom of my garden, turn around to look back at my house. And I see this object now coming over my rooftop. Why my rooftop? I don't know. But over my rooftop, much higher in elevation. And for some strange reason, uh, which I don't know to why to this day, I put my hand up like I'm answering a question in class. And no sooner did the object go past my 90 degrees than the whole area plunged into darkness. Wow. Now, how could I predict a power cut? Well, that's ridiculous. So I realized that having moved from one geographical location to perhaps a mile away distance to a second geographical location, that that light, whatever it was, must have interacted with the power grid. And that was my sighting. That's incredible. And did you tell your parents about it? I mean, obviously you told them about it, but after you, after it was over, did you have a conversation with them or no? Well, no, I, I kind of had a brief conversation with them because they're still racing around to get candles. And I said, I told you so. And they just put it down to coincidence. They basically ignored what I'd said to them. And I, they were so, in a sense, dismissive that I didn't even look in the newspaper the next day, uh, which I should have, but I didn't. Uh, we weren't, now believe it or not, in 1976, uh, where I lived, we weren't even on the telephone. So that's how old we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and and so the nearest phone, a public call box, as it were, was about 200 meters away. So who am I going to ring? You know, it's not Ghostbusters. Right. Who do you ring? And I was 16 and my parents dismissed it. So I always found it very odd. Uh, and for me, the only thing that I could do in the aftermath of that was to see if I could find any UFO books. I'd obviously heard of the term UFO, flying saucers. And where I lived, it was a small suburb of a town called Scunthorpe in Lincolnshire. And I was in a suburb called Ashby. And Ashby had what we would call a high street, a main street, as you would say, with lots of shops. And I remember that there was a second-hand bookshop. And I remember within a, a few days of the sighting, going to the bookshop, and by coincidence, and, and it is a big coincidence, the mm -hmm. first book that I ever bought on UFOs was written by Major Donald Kehoe, who turns mm -hmm. out to be one of the pioneers and heroes, founder of NICAP, obviously in America, uh, top, top guy. And uh, it was the last of his five books, uh, Aliens from Space. And it was a brand new, it was the last of his, it was, it was brand new. And it was the last of his five books that he wrote. And I remember reading that book and if you think about all the thousands of books that I could have picked, right. I, I picked one that turns out to be a hero of mine because he never deviated away from his belief that there was a cover-up 
and that some UFOs were actually ET, which is my opinion totally. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I've never changed that. So that first book was a real incentive. And when I read the book, uh, I immediately uh, read about what's called the New York blackout in uh, on the eastern seaboard in 1965. And that was rumored to have been triggered by UFOs. So straight away, I got some kind of validation that objects could interact cause power cuts and it kind of validated my event and i was hooked after that but again this in the uk this was just a bit before uh, maybe a year or so before vhs betamax video recorders came in and we started to be able to watch videos on demand and that kind of thing so it was a different world uh, so really it was only second-hand books that i could do i, I remember going to a, a, a ufo meeting there was a local group and i went there and there was half a dozen people and i thought they're all a bit crazy and i only went once <laughs> so so apart from reading books that was the kind of it i then away went away had a life had a, two children joined the air force then joined the police and it was really about 19 years later 18 19 years later i'd always had the interest but it was in the background then uh, and then I came across a glossy uh, Air Force size magazine that looked as professional as any other magazine in, in a big bookstore. And it was called UFO Magazine. And it was done uh, in the UK by a, a company called Quest Publications. And, and I read it and it kind of reawakened my interest. And this would be maybe the late 90s, 97, 98, that kind of time. So a long intervening period. Uh, and initially i'd i'd got as many books as i could and then i'd gone away from the subject and then this magazine kind of was a catalyst for me to re-engage with the subject and as i did so i then started to buy books that had come out in those intervening years and one of the things that struck me from when i was a child of 16 and reading Kehoe's books was the reality that pilots were chasing these things that um, you know, commercial pilots, radar operators, uh, military people, police officers were regularly seeing these things throughout the world, and yet everybody paid little or no attention to it. We were deemed crackers if you believed in UFOs. And then when I began to got a real, you know, re-engage with the subject, I got all these intervening books and found that really in the intervening period, nothing had changed, and people were still deemed as crazy despite the fact that pilots were chasing UFOs, some UFOs uh, had interacted and there'd been contacts all over the world, supposedly with the abduction phenomena, etc. And I thought, this isn't right. The public are not, I, you know, I'm, I, by then, I was already a detective working mm -hmm. on all manner of serious inquiries. And I'm a very evidential person that's the six years in the air force i guarded nuclear weapons at two nuclear bases in the uk which is akin to what they did uh, at Rendleton forest which we'll, we'll come mm -hmm. on to and and when i uh began to uh, to, to like this re-engage process i couldn't help but feel frustrated that the world really hadn't changed in that intervening period mm -hmm. and over a period of time i began to feel drawn into wanting to do something 
uh, the question was what as, as a detective and I wasn't a high rank I was only at the bottom rank a detective constable I didn't want to go higher because if you went high it meant you got stuck behind a desk and I liked to interview people that was kind of my specialism and I was an advanced interviewer of suspects and witnesses so I like being at the sharp end I like to interview the suspects and get mm -hmm. good statements on a major inquiry so that was kind of my thing uh, and I felt what could I do? And then one day I came up with the idea uh, of creating a, a police database of UK police officers, both serving and retired historical accounts from books and magazines. And I would create a database and it's called the Proof Force Police Database, Police <laughs> Reporting UFO Sightings, Proof Force. And uh, when I did that, uh, a couple of unexpected things happened. When I went public, I went public in January of 2002 with an article in this glossy UFO magazine. And the editor of that magazine was a guy called Graham Birdsell, sadly passed away uh, many years ago now in 2003. Um, and he encouraged me to come forward and do this research so he came up for a couple of years before he died i got to know him and then suddenly he died at the age of 49 which is a big loss in the uk and but he was my mentor and he set the spark running for me to want to get involved in research and the spin-offs were um as soon as i went public i was still a detective still serving so it was a bit newsworthy so i started to get a lot of national media attention in the uk i also did a couple of uk uh us radio shows jeff friends i think i even did out bell once i'm not sure but i certainly did jeff friends and did one or two other things and so my name became a bit known and then the spin-off from that was people in the uk then started to say will you do lectures about your police cases mm -hmm. and at that point i'd never done any public speaking whatsoever and so it was a you know initially i was surprised and then i started to be invited to go around the country in the uk giving talks and often 150 200 people there and uh, i found that it was something that came naturally to me most of my colleagues uh, were not comfortable to go on, on the radio or on the TV or anything like that, but media had never bothered me. And mm -hmm. so when it came to public speaking, I actually found I could do it and I felt very comfortable. Uh, and that was like a spin-off. And, and then a few years down the line in 2010, Steve Bassett, PRG, uh, presented me with the Disclosure Award in Washington, D.C., and it was at that point, after 2010, that I then started to do international lectures. And I've now lectured in 22 countries. So I, I'm extremely lucky and privileged to, to have gone on this strange journey leading to where I am now. And my research into Rendlesham uh, began uh, publicly in December of 2007, when I appeared in an episode of UFO Hunters with Bill Burns. And it was about Reynolds from Forest. And I was invited to go on there because I'd, I'd informed the producers uh, who were making a documentary about my police cases. I said, what else are you doing in the UK? And they said, oh, we're doing Reynolds from Forest. And I said, well, I've got some interesting thoughts on that because I used to do what they did. And I think there's more witnesses. And they said, oh, OK, you can come along and you can ask Colonel Holt, who was the 
the person who the, the then deputy base commander who wrote the famous Holt Memorandum. So I got to meet him. That was a big thrill. And we struck up a good rapport. And we were, a hundred, you know, we were um, in a collaboration period for about seven years until late 2014. Uh, and so I got to know him well. Uh, and I began a lot of research into the case. I'd already been interested. Uh, but that was the catalyst for going public with it. And and then literally uh, six years ago, 2017, I was asked to uh, get involved in a documentary called Capel Green as the lead researcher. And I thought, well, I know the case pretty well, but if I'm going to put my name to something, uh, I best be certain that I'm absolutely accurate. So it, it, it began a, re, a reinvestigation process which, as I say, for anybody with, who uh, who uh, we're talking about in terms of the book, and I'll just get a copy of the book. Yeah. So there, there, there's the book. So so that's, in a sense, uh, that five years uh, led to a, a three years. There yes, there you go. Uh, that led me on a, a three years writing the book, but a five-year reinvestigation. And I never intended to write a book at all. Uh, but mm -hmm. the documentary was taking a lot longer and it had grown out of all proportion. There was some 70 hours of material and lots of special effects. And, and it was a big, big production and it's still not out yet. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it was my then wife who said, well, you've got loads of information. It's never going to get in a two-hour film. Right. You know, why don't you, why don't you write a book? And I said, well, that's maybe not a bad idea. So I, I began writing the book three years ago and it's just been published now. Uh, and it's now available on Amazon, and 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 it's got a forward by Don Schmidt, who's obviously I think most people would be regarded as the world's leading expert on Roswell, mm -hmm. uh, an author of many books on the subject, and he kindly wrote a, a, a very humbling uh, forward, very powerful uh, forward for the book, and uh, he. Uh, he and many other researchers have now gone on to make very good uh, reviews of the book. So I'm still collecting that. And I've probably now got about 15 or 16 research reviews, which are all excellent. And I'm very humbled by their kind words. And the book's doing well. Uh, but for me, it was really about getting the information out there. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of politics involved in the Rendlesham case. Uh, in the UK and in the US in particular, the case has been hugely covered up by both the British and US governments for all, you know, for, for over four decades. And so it, for me, it was really a, a question of getting the truth out there. And, and it, I went into writing the book on an evidential basis because that's the only way I could do it. Sure. You know, I've got 30 years of policing experience. That's the only way I could review it. And so what I did was, even though I knew the case well, or so I thought, mm -hmm. I thought I'm going to step back and go literally hunting for anything I could find that I thought the public hadn't heard and hadn't read, hadn't been in any documentaries, but I thought should have been told to you. And so I stepped back and then went on this hunt for a long time and finding obscure inter interviews that prominent people who'd played a part in the story um, and and bringing those, transcribing these interviews, 
often uh, they were just audio so you had to transcribe which is a long and laborious process mm -hmm. picking out the main bits and then what i would do in a sense evidentially is i'd review and evaluate what they said during these interviews in a sense being a detective and taking out the more salient parts of the interview and bringing them up and saying asking questions well why was that and it raises this question and so far uh, so good everybody seems to think that it's a a kind of a unique approach to a major reinvestigation sure. and so far everybody thinks it's you know i've done a pretty good job so I'm, I'm i'm very humbled by the kind words that have come my way for people that don't know what that 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 story is could you please tell them just give them a brief <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's easier said than done because it, it's it's as i say in the book it's it's arguably the most complex case in ufo history now most ufo cases are one-off events uh one-off sightings one-off events lasting several hours or whatever but the rendlesham forest uh, case is very very different and in essence there's at least three to four nights of consecutive uh ufo activity on the on the nights and most of it involves u.s military security police u.s air force security police uh who were guarding essentially nuclear weapons some were on just routine patrols but essentially they were guarding a, a tactical nuclear weapons that are housed in one of what was called the twin bases of Arif Woodbridge and Arif Bentwaters. Now, Arif Bentwaters uh, held tactical nuclear weapons in the event of Soviet aggression. We're still talking the Cold War. We're talking late December 1980. And we're not just talking one incident, as, as, as the media has suggested. It's really maybe only two nights that you see mentioned in the documentaries. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they kind of just lump it all together. But as a detective, I broke it down and uh, in the conclusions of the book, I list all the different events and I actually in the book list 18 separate events. And what I mean by separate events is different times, different people. Uh, if you're if you were, for example, chasing somebody uh, mm -hmm. and you then lost them for 20 minutes, then that's called that's called a break in the chase and then if you see them 20 minutes later then another aspect of it begins it's another mm -hmm. scientific so you can have incidents that are all part of one larger incident but where you have a break that fundamentally should be a new incident yeah mm -hmm. because yeah. it's probably somewhere in a different location and then other people may have seen things 20 minutes later 30 minutes later and that's what i did now in the book i in the conclusions i, I list 18 different events so not couple of things that most people associate with the documentaries that's been made mm -hmm. over the years and by breaking it down it then very clearly shows you the different things seen by different people at different times often nowhere near the or several times not near the forest at all some on the base some very close to the base perimeter not just in the forest which is mm -hmm. the way it's portrayed in the media and so, like I say, it's very complicated. Now, in the book, I say 18 different incidents, but actually I can now, since the publication, reveal that it's 17 
because one of the incidents, uh, which I think is in chapter 20 of the book, the James mm -hmm. Stewart story, which is an amazing story, he has subsequently, post-publication, has checked all his military documents and his evaluation records uh, from when he was in the Air Force, and he's found that actually his event occurred one year earlier, and not in late December 1980, but in late December 1979, which is a, another strange coincidence because people have often said that they set up things in the forest on the December 1980 group of sightings as if they were expecting things to come back. Well, we never really had any context for that, but this new James Stewart case says that a year earlier, he had an extraordinary event. It happened very close to the forest, very close to the, what's called the prominent East Gate at the back of Arif Woodbridge. Uh, there were potential entities seen scurrying through the trees towards a, a, a UFO that was landing into a, a clump of trees nearby. So this is an exceptional kind of case, but it's a year earlier now. So it, again, in a later edition, I, I would think of the book, that will all be corrected and that will be an earlier chapter. Uh, one of the other things as well that's never really been discussed is the fact that in the run-up to those December 1980 cluster of events, there were three prominent what were called precursor cases, three prominent UFO sightings that occurred on the twin bases throughout 1980. So one in February 80, July 80, and then November 80, just a month before the late December sightings. And they're all relevant because it shows that many documentaries still claim, even to this day, that the men were confused by a lighthouse. Well, that's kind of ridiculous when mm -hmm. you have so many different incidents and so many that were actually on the bases but had never been reported. And and of these uh, uh, precursor cases, two of them were actually on the base. So uh, and one was quite near to the ta uh, the tactical nuclear weapons weapon storage area, Irish Pentwaters. So these are very relevant. You know, it's not a one-off event. It's many many different events, and. One of the things I've tried to do with the book is to just lay out the facts, pick out the, the best bits of information from old interviews, new interviews, re-interviews where I've re-interviewed military witnesses and got new testimony, is, is to basically give you a lot more information than I think you've ever been given before. Because all the documentaries over the last 40 years or so, uh, well, all of them, do not reveal the information that's in the book because mm -hmm. they don't go into the minutiae. Now, minutiae is important if what emerges from that is an important statement, an important admission. And I think if you've read the book, you'll find that there was a very, I think, a, a, an absolutely genuine admission that was obtained from Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, the then Deputy Base Commander, then retired as a colonel, he made a, uh, uh, an admission that's gone under the radar to a, a MUFON research called Ray Boucher in 1985. Mm -hmm. And it's played down, it's given scant reference. Uh, there, the, you know, people will say, well, uh, Scott Colburn and Ray Boucher from MUFON did, did some great research in the 80s. And that's basically it. And they'll talk about, yeah, um, Colonel Holt made an admission to Boucher, but it's not put in the context.
-hmm. and and as i say as i make out early on in the book context is everything if you don't give the context you don't get the wider perspective it you know you can anybody who's ever been involved in editing of any kind mm -hmm. will know that a good editor can make you look stupid if they want to because right. they cut it in a way that will present a slant on what you said and that's what the media do when the me i've worked on on many interview uh, documentaries now and what i've learned over the years is tv makes entertainment but it doesn't necessarily give you all the evidence True. it gives you some of the evidence they cherry pick which person to interview for the tv and that's basically where the problem is because they don't lie overtly they do it by stealth they by do it by emission they just don't give you all of the information and all of the context so one of the reasons why i've written the book uh, and it became stronger as i kept through the writing the book was mm -hmm. that i wanted to try to change the narrative the existing narrative the way the case is deemed in the media because the media could have done pretty much everything i've done in the book but mm -hmm. never have because they've never wanted to. They're mm -hmm. happy to just present two or three witnesses who were involved, but they're not interested in showing the other 10 or 20 other witnesses that could be in these documentaries. And when you actually talk to these people and re-interview them, like I've done, sure. I obtained some incredible testimony uh, from a guy called Sergeant Adrian Bustinza, who had made over the years private kind of comments and some social media comments but never ever been really interviewed didn't like the media had suffered a lot of nightmares uh, uh he was religious and it, what he saw affected his you know the way he looked at the world uh, it was very troubling for him and he was a very reluctant person to to get hold of and be interviewed media wise but eventually i had some luck and i interviewed him in a four and a half hour transatlantic phone call that cost me 180 pounds now the money is irrelevant really because it was arguably the most important interview i'd ever done in the ufo research because he was what i call a linking witness and uh, he'd also been interviewed by this rare boucher from mufon uh, in, in 1885 and the, the thing that comes from that admission, and it all ties in, links to Adrian Bustinza, because Adrian Bustinza was interviewed by a former Connecticut detective called Larry Fawcett, who was a, a researcher who did a very good book with Barry Greenwood called Clear Intent. It was one of the first really evidential books. And in one chapter, they included a chapter on Reynolds and Forrest, or it was the Bentwards case really then. Uh, but they were the first really to highlight it in a prominent UFO book. And their research was good. And so they interviewed uh, Adrian Bustinza, and there's a long, long interview. Now, interview styles have changed over the years. Mm -hmm. And if you think of Kojak, the old TV series, it was like in your face, you did this, you did this, right. he said this, he said this. Well, that kind of interview style has changed. It's evolved. And the, the kind of training that I did as an advanced interview was very different. But that was then. So you can't criticize Larry Fawcett, but that was the style of interview. And the interview he had with Adrian Bustinza was based on the fact that um, Larry Fawcett had already talked to a guy called Larry Warren, who was a military witness and is widely regarded as the first military 
whistleblower for this case because he went public with his name in late 1982 and went public uh, as he came forward in late 82 and went public in late 83 uh, when the case really hit the big headlines around the world with a big tabloid uk headline of ufo lands in suffolk and it's official that's when the case really hit the world's kind of store uh, headlines and as we would say now went viral or the equivalent then uh so what you have is larry Fawcett has talked to this guy called larry warren got his account and then he's gone to see or spoke to um larry uh to adrian bastinza mm-hmm. and bastinza basically uh is it's like Larry Warren said this, Larry Warren said that, Larry Warren said, and, and Adrian Bustin is basically just going, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. He's not denying it, but he's it, he's been more or less being led through the interview, which is not what would, we would do now. But he does say enough things in there of, of his own volition that says that, you know, he was involved in what was called a second landing. Now, it's this controversial landing that was really at the heart of a lot of what's being covered up in my opinion, now because Colonel Holt has subsequently, right from the mid 1980s, has denied that there was a second landing. He's mm-hmm. denied that Colonel Williams, the base commander of 12,000 personnel, was involved. Absolutely mm-hmm. staunchly, he'd been very critical of Larry Warren, the original military whistleblower, saying that the guys are wannabe. He, you know, he wasn't involved. Blah blah blah. He basically just dismissed him. But he was very, very quiet. Mm-hmm. I'm talking Colonel Holt to mention. In fact, he rarely ever mentioned Adrian Bastinza. But Adrian Bastinza turns up on Holt's famous audio tape about the incident, uh, which was a live recording of the night Lieutenant Colonel Holt went out with a team of small team into the forest because UFOs had been seen back again in the forest. And they have multiple UFO sightings themselves. And he then writes this very famous memo, what's now referred to as the Holt Memorandum. And he makes this live recording on a little dictaphone, doing mm-hmm. intimate voice um, onto uh, recording various little clips, little segments onto his audio tape, which becomes this, this very famous now audio that you can hear and is often played in the documentaries. But at the heart of it, he never mentioned Adrian Bastinza. But actually, Adrian Bastinza turns up being mentioned three times on the audio tape when you hear it back. And it's, so he was there. He was part of this little team with Holt. But he always kind of forgot to mention him. He would mention the others, but he kind of mentioned that. And in fact, when I started my collaboration with uh, Colonel Holt, I said, right, I'm going to go away for four months, look at everything and uh, come back to you and start asking questions and eventually i went back to him after four months or so and asked him questions he, he answered fine and i said uh, who 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 were the people were you were with you in in the forest he went to me uh lieutenant england uh, you know we've got uh, a couple of sergeants there with me and i, and I said well who, who was the fifth person there and he went, well, I'm not sure. What I said, it's Adrian Bastinza. Oh, that's right, it's Adrian Bastinza. He was very reluctant. And I thought, why? Well, it, it now turns when I interview him all these years later, he confirms, Adrian Bastinza does confirm that he's involved in a second landing 
it's mm -hmm. not the one that's involved the first night, which we refer to as the first night involving Jim Pennison and John Burroughs. This is now two or potentially three nights later, because Adrian Bastinza says it was another night, a potentially fourth night. And when that he said that, that was completely new, because everybody always lumped it together as being involved in what was called the third night, the Holt night, when he makes mm -hmm. this audio tape, etc. But Adrian Bustinza said, no, this was another night I was involved. And this was the night Larry Warren was involved. And he said he was closer to the craft than he was. And he was only 20, 30 feet away. Larry Warren was only maybe 10 feet away from this craft. It, this craft was surrounded by US Air Force security police. But more importantly, it was being filmed on motion picture footage. Hmm. So it was moving video. If you think about the old cinema, sure. motion picture footage meant moving images. Mm -hmm. And so this is not still photographs, which is what Larry Warren had always said. So there he is corroborating that Warren's there, security police were there, which is what Warren said, that it was being filmed, which is what Warren said. And, and then he said Colonel Williams, the base commander, was there. Again, what Warren said. Now, that was all coming out now. But when I looked back to this 1985 interview that Ray Boucher had had with Adrian Bustinza and Holt, he'd rang up Holt and he'd said, well, Larry Fawcett has interviewed Dean. I've interviewed uh, Adrian Bustinza. I've spoken to Larry Warren and blah, blah, blah. And he lays the case out and he says, um, there were security police surrounding a, a landed craft that it was being filmed and that the base commander was there. Mm -hmm. And Holt yes. says to him, yes, I can verify all of that for Senator James Exxon. And the thing was, Ray Boucher wrote it down verbatim, his reply, and he'd laid out all the circumstances. There's no ambiguity. And he subsequently wrote several letters to uh, Senator James Exxon of, of Nebraska, laying it all out there. So there's no ambiguity. He says, I'm writing it down verbatim. This is what he admitted. And so when you put it in the full context, this was a huge admission back in 85 that's been swept under the carpet. But if I was a police officer, I would say that was a solid admission under the circumstances. Sorry, I, go on. Oh, I what I was thinking about is when the first sighting occurred, we're, uh, I, I heard stories from World War II where the pilots that were flying saw saucers and stuff while they were flying. And the first thought was it was from the German, you know, the, the, that they were German. And I'm wondering, because it being the time of the Cold War, is when these, these sightings started happening, if that's not where the military was going, thinking that maybe they were Russian. Well, in, in certain uh, respects, you are right. When I did my uh, uh, nuclear training for the RAF police, I gathered nuclear weapons at RAF Honington in Suffolk and then RAF Larbrook in what was then West Germany. And they used to talk about Russian Spetsnaz flying down on hang gliders and trying to infiltrate the nuclear site and take it over. I mean, it was kind of ludicrous, but that's what they told us. But they apparently already told that to the Americans as well. So they were on alert and you had perhaps 40 people on shift, mm -hmm. perhaps 25 of them within the confines of the nuclear weapons storage area. Then you'll have some on mobile patrols, some people walking around and doing various uh, 
entry duties kind of checks checkpoints and things like that so you've got approximately 40 odd people on per shift which is the same amount as what we had in the uk so broadly the similar now the reality is is that the security was extremely tight for nuclear weapons uh some people have said well maybe uh, they were just trying uh, to psych them out and this was a test a psychological test of the mm -hmm. airmen uh, but no when you look at all the incidents you're looking at objects you're looking at entities that have been seen on at least two occasions two landing sites on the, what was classed as the first night and the fourth night you've got objects uh, going from the size of a, a a basketball that's glowing red and orange and dripping what looks like molten metal to an object the size of a car to a triangular object seen in the sky that are zipping all around the sky from an object shining a beam down into the nuclear weapon storage area uh, and then doing like a grid-like pattern i re-interviewed a guy called steve longero and he is a 30-year police uh, career, very similar to mine, a stand-up guy. And he said, I was inside the nuclear weapon storage area when I saw UFO outside of the perimeter near the forest shine a beam down into the nuclear bunkers. And it did then a grid search all the way along the hot row of bunkers as if it was looking for something. And I think it was scanning to see how much nuclear weapons, uh, how much ordnance, how many nuclear weapons there were. And a lot of people don't understand the context at the time. Why does it happen there? Well, at the time, uh, the, if it, for history, if you go back into Europe, Poland was still a part of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. We're talking still Cold War. And the, there was a revolution beginning in Poland. They wanted freedom, democracy, under Lech Wałęsa, the Polish shipyard workers. And at the time of the Reynolds and Forest incident, hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops were massing on the Polish borders. And it looked like they were going to roll in the tanks, quell the, the revolution, <coughs> excuse me, and, uh, and put it down like they'd done in Hungary and Czechoslovakia many years earlier. And so that was a really big you know possible third world war scenario and then you also had tensions high in the middle east because there was the american hostage crisis with 52 americans held in iran so that was going on so you had middle east powder keg uh possible soviet aggression that might trigger a third world war and i think having looked at this subject for a long time why do they turn up there when i first met colonel holt in 2007 on the first night I met him, he told there were more nuclear weapons at RAF Bentwaters held underground than anywhere else in Europe. Now, it was a nuclear base, so they were allowed to house them. And in fact, I've got a document saying that they housed 25. But I think it was the amount of ordnance that was secretly being deployed there that attracted UFOs. And, and anybody who's read into this subject will know that there's a long history and, and correlation between uh, nuclear activity in UFOs. In fact, really, UFOs turn up as soon as we detonate the first atomic bomb, and they then start turning up in numbers. So literally from 45 onwards. Uh, and whether it be nuclear power plants, nuclear energy, uh, nuclear-powered aircraft, uh, our ships, etc., aircraft carriers, they're interested. There's a, uh, in fact, Robert Hastings wrote a great book called UFOs and Nukes, which then went on to be 
a very good documentary called UFOs and Nukes, which outlined this link to nuclear weapons. So I think the real reason why UFOs turn up there is that it's linked to nuclear weapons, the amount of illegal that went against all the armament agreements. I can't prove that, but that I think that's why they turn up in 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 numbers and why they're so preoccupied at a time of world crisis. I mean, in well, the conclusion, so, you know, there's so well, many stories of people who have been abducted. Yep. And they ask them, you know, what, what's in our future and stuff, and the aliens will tell them that they're concerned about our use of nukes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just as an aside, we the in the Rendlesham case, there are at least uh, two occasions when there is what we would now attribute as missing time involving mm -hmm. some of the military personnel. Uh, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston had at least 45 minutes, but I suspect two or three hours that disappeared on the first night because mm -hmm. at one point Holt uh, disclosed that uh, one of the men, Sergeant Chandler, had said when they came back, you'd been missing for up to three hours. And he also in admitted that in an audio interview with me. Uh, and so you've got that. And then you have Adrian Bustinza. Two mm -hmm. nights later, with, again, the first night witness, John Burroughs, cutting a long story short, they have another incident. And at the time, they go out uh, for what they think is 10 minutes. And when they come back, 40 minutes have elapsed. And Colonel Holt is saying, where have you been? 40 minutes has gone by, but for them, it's 10 minutes. And during that time, they'd had an encounter with a bright light. John Burroughs had been engulfed in bright light. And Adrian Bustinza, who was behind him and fell to the ground and looked forward as John was engulfed in this light, says he saw, and he, this is what he told me in my interview with him, he said, I saw some kind of figure to the left of John and some kind of figure to the right of John. Now, whether it's alien or whatever, interdimensional, I don't know. But it infers that there was something there of a life form with John in the middle. So these are at least a couple of genuine uh, missing time elements. And I suspect there's more. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I'm keen to get this book out now is to, to appeal to anybody that's listening to these shows, especially Americans who are there, to say, look, if you haven't come forward, come forward because this is the best opportunity now to start changing the narrative. Please approach me. My, Hesel, my email is heseltinegarry at altmail.com. You can put that on a link afterwards. But yeah, please contact me uh, because there are still a lot of people who have not gone on the record. And of course, we're now talking 40 years after the event. Right. You know, it'd be nice to get their testimony on the record to right. add to what we already know. And unfortunately, as time goes on, some people will naturally start to die die off like Roswell. So we right. need to find their testimony and get it, uh, you know, down on paper somewhere, uh, whoever does it. But but I would re urge these people to come forward. But what strikes me about this is that obviously the upper-ups knew what was going on because, like you say, at, you know, at some point after these aliens had landed, they had sentries out there standing around their garden sites. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the, for example, the in uh, on on the what was classed as the third night, they were bringing out 
portable generators that were called light holes to light up the forest. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, a British police officer remarked who was who, who went to the base said, I could never understand the Americans. It's like they, they were expecting them to come back. And there's maybe some element of truth to that. But mm -hmm. it certainly wasn't a military exercise or a psychological test, or as some people have speculated, some kind of holographic, uh, ho you know, holograms that projected into the forest. It was too widespread. The technology wasn't there now, then, and I, I don't think it's there now to do it with so many different events. There were events happening all over, simultaneous. Mm -hmm. People were experiencing different things, so I don't, I don't buy that at all. Especially not 1980s, not drones, etc. We're talking intelligence. We're talking objects that were probing along the perimeter fence. You know, there were there were things being seen uh, that displayed clear intelligence, and we have to kind of get as much information while we can whilst people are still alive, and the right. book. He's trying to do that. I'm trying to change the narrative. But some people will be reluctant to do that. And TV and some people in the USA, UFO-wise, mm -hmm. don't want this kind of story to get out and these re-interviews to emerge because it's right. upsetting the very clicky uh, way it's presented. And it's mm -hmm. wrong. Uh, I, I spoke to witnesses who said, I won't come forward because of the way it's presented in the TV documentaries, because it's not right. The narrative isn't right. And mm -hmm. other people should be allowed a voice. And so my book is really for the other people who to say, you have a voice and, and, and let's try to change the narrative. Now, in, in your interviews, when people started seeing this stuff, what, what, what types of things did they describe? I mean, were, were they were they discs or were they you know cigar shaped or what? No, like I said to you, the the, the UFOs that are seen quite often uh, 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 red beach ball size, red right. glowing object, mm -hmm. beach ball size, um, slow moving, uh, clearly probing in some kind of way. You've mm -hmm. got objects the size of a car uh, mm -hmm. that were which was seen by Holt across the, what was called the farmer's field near to a farmhouse, that that object then divided silently into five white objects that then disappeared. Then two objects were seen to the north, one to the south, zigzagging patterns across the sky, instant right-angled turns, mm -hmm. maneuvers we can't do then and we, couldn't, we can't do them now. Mm -hmm. So you've got all these things. You've got uh, uh, potential entities seen, on at least two occasions, two landings. The the craft that was seen on the second occasion was bigger than the first night. The first mm -hmm. night landing was uh, a tangible, physical craft, approximately three meters by three meters on the ground in a small clearing in the forest. It was glass-like, warm to the touch. Two nights later, perhaps three nights later, there is this second landing, the one that Adrian Bustinza talks about with Larry Warren. He confirms that Warren's there. They describe the same thing, corroborate each other perfectly, and they see a shimmering, translucent-type craft that you can't look at it directly. You've got to look at it in the periphery. And mm -hmm. from that, the story came that entities emerged from this second landing and that this was being filmed. This is why it's important. Right. It right. was being filmed and that there was some kind of silent face-off with the base commander, Colonel Gordon Williams, responsible for 12,000 personnel. And I think that's one of the biggest secrets that's been deliberately uh, dismissed because 
would the Americans, would the British want to admit that the base commander of 12,000 people was in a silent face-off meeting that was mm -hmm. filmed <laughs> in a field um, uh, in 1980? And I think the answer is no. And they've done their damnedest to try to uh, keep this secret for as long as this time. But fortunately, because of Adrian Bustinza, Bust, you know, corroborating this and that admission in 1985, mm -hmm. there's a real, real chance that that was real. And, and plus another guy. A guy called Captain Mike Morano made two comments, one in writing and one on uh, in the CNN documentary, the, one of the first and best documentaries ever came out uh, that was aired in uh, 1985, early 1985. And he said he was he was he was blacked out, but it, it's 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 him and his voice. And he basically said, I picked up the base commander, took him to a waiting fighter aircraft, and he said what's in the satchel for the, the top secret satchel basically package for the pilot and he says it's film of the landed ufo and that came from colonel williams and that was from an officer captain mike verano so again it's all tying in that there really was a second landing there really was film and and and, and in a quirk as well later admissions found by ray boucher from the pentagon mm -hmm. uh, uh a woman who worked there was the Pentagon FOI, Freedom of Information Officer. Called, uh, she disclosed to him that she'd heard American pilots talking about seeing film of the Rendlesham. Hmm. And she, uh, 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 but it, there was nothing on record publicly. It was hidden away somewhere. But she heard them, over, uh, overheard them talking about that they'd seen video. And I think this is this video. So that evidence was there, whether it's there now. I don't know, but it, but it was. But I think with a book, if you just kind of roll it all up, I've tried to present the sure. facts. I've took sentiment out of it, and right. I've literally put out the more salient facts in a way that's not been done before. And, and that's been reflected by some of the comments and reviews by, you know, serious researchers. This is, you know, the whole incident is fascinating to me. The other thing that I can draw a parallel to is just last week I had um, Paul Smith on talking about the possibility that Eisenhower had met with the aliens and had had, had negotiations with them, you know, for whatever they wanted. And with the base commander going out to talk to them, I mean, it, it kind of like fits in the same mold. It does, but, I, I, and in fact, I, I got a copy of his book, uh, uh, and it's a very interesting book, but for me, Mm -hmm. evidentially there's not quite enough first person testimony to say yes i saw eisenhower with that's yeah. the difference a first person testimony whereas the people i'm talking to at reynolds right. were first person direct witnesses and that's why uh it's better if you can get first hand testimony rather Absolutely. than second third fourth fifth hand which is often the case with these other stories i'm not saying it didn't happen I'd right. like. I think there's. Right. I think right. there's a real possibility it did, but right. evidentially, mm -hmm. there is no real proof proving it. He certainly had a break in his timetable, and he was missing for a few hours under a dental sure. scam, right. uh, where he could have met. And I suspect he did, but mm -hmm. you can't actually prove it because it's right. not right. direct right. testimony. All right, but yeah, that's that, that. That's kind of what I'm saying is that we don't know for sure if he met with Eisenhower, but no. obviously. For the base commander to go out and talk to these aliens, he knew about them and possibly what they were doing there. That's why he went out there. 
Yeah, uh, and it's an incredible scenario. It sounds like science fiction, but I really yeah. do think it happened. And I th and I and in the book, I I kind of highlight I think fifteen uh, links to that scenario that the, there was entities seen uh, and this second landing, and a lot of it came. Some came from civilians, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and it's mentioned in the book. But I think I think I find fifteen. There's a chapter on it. There's 15 uh, entries that relate to the, the 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 second landing and this base commander being there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. You know this hour blew by. Flew by. That quick. Wow. That this has been incredible, and I really appreciate you coming on. Well, anytime you want me back, just ask. Fantastic. How can people find you, sir? Uh, well, I'm in the UK. Uh, I'm the editor of uh, an online magazine called UFO Truth Magazine, which is ufotruthmagazine.co.uk. I'm sure I'll give you a link. You can put it out uh, okay. with the with the information of the show. Um, so that's been now running eight years, nine years since I retired in 2013 from the police. I'm also the vice president of ISA, the International Coalition for Extraterrestrial Research, which is mm -hmm. a uh, an international NGO, non-government organization. We have it comprises scientists, academics, and leading researchers. Don Smith is actually part of it uh, as the North American representative. Uh, and we're in 30 countries. We're trying to change the perception and make it more global. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, everything that's happening in the United States is hugely important. And we have to start really evidentially trying to come together and work together for the greater good and say, look, it's about time that we really made a case that the UFO subject is serious and worthy of scientific investigation, which is beginning to happen with the likes of Avi Loeb and Gary Nolan and people like that, eminent scientists, etc., who are now involved. The stigma is beginning to recede. I, I think next week, there's, uh, this week, we're going to have a little congressional hearing right. uh, with the, the, the head of ARO, or the old domain anomaly resolution office he's going to be getting some questions i think from senators and congressmen and mm -hmm. women so that's going to be interesting so there's lots happening and i think when we talk about this grand scheme of disclosure we are closer now than i've ever been in my lifetime and i think we are quite close the the not quite the american media are still dragging their heels right. i have a big bugbear with the way the media don't treat the subject properly even now but behind the scenes i think that position will change and i think if we have congressional hearings about nuclear weapons shutdowns uh, that uh, people have given testimony like robert salas and bob hastings about a uh, big sir incident in 64 if those people are then called to congressional hearings and that's live and tv cameras then the, the press are going to be all over it, I think, mm -hmm. because they're finally going to get to hear the truth from direct witnesses who were there, first-hand witnesses. And I think that'll be a big game changer. Absolutely. I love the work you do. I love the work you do with, with putting together the, the database, you know, because like I said earlier, I don't watch those those crazy ghost shows. I watch the ones that involve police officers and other yep. people in the military. They're not, they're, not, they're not crazy people. Police officers yeah. do not put their heads above the parapet and mm -hmm. go on TV, whether we get, whether it's a ghost or right. guys or something, right. or a UFO sighting, unless it happened, because mm -hmm. they don't want to risk their reputation. They're not fools. 
Absolutely. All right, Gary, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you coming on. Get a good night's rest, okay? Thank you. Thanks for promoting the book. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good one. Bye. Okay, guys, that topic is something that I have loved reading about, you know, since since I was in my 20s. And I'm glad I got to talk to him about it. I, I, I encourage you to look at this book because I, I have seen parts of it. And there is some really good information, lots of witness information about what did occur. Okay, so let's uh, look at tomorrow. We're going to stay in the same vein, only tomorrow's show. Make a note of this. It'll be 5 p.m. Pacific. We're going to stay in the same vein. Daniel Harari is going to be on with us. And he had, had, a, had a UFO sighting one time when he was out walking with his father. And that started him in, 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 in getting into the, this stuff, too. So he's going to come on tomorrow and talk about his experience. He has a book out. And so it should be interesting to hear him. So that'll be 5 p.m. Pacific with Daniel, Daniel Harari. I hate to say it, can I? I used to these early days, right? Anyway, and um, yeah. So I want to thank everybody who came today. And for those people who are at work, uh, of course, this will be available after the fact this evening. So you guys can see that as well. And if you like what you saw, share it with five people. If you hated what you saw, share it with five of your enemies. We're trying to build up our numbers. And I see there's a couple, there's a couple likes up there, which is really cool. The, the more of those likes we get, whether it's on YouTube or on uh, you know, for the Facebook show, the higher up in the algorithm we get. And the higher up in the algorithm we get, the more it's this is distributed out for others to see. And it pulls more people in. So, yeah. So, just keep hitting those like buttons and whatnot. And also, um, when we talk about subscribing. Subscribing. YouTube, you have to have 1,000 subscribers to monetize. And I'm about 450 away now over on YouTube. So, any of you guys that are watching that um, aren't, aren't subscribed to us over on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe. Because we're not only going to be doing this. I'm going to be doing reviews on that, like Star Wars stuff coming up here. You know, I'm going to kind of expand a little bit on what I'm going to be doing on YouTube, as well as we're going to be doing some live ghost investigations come, starting in May, and you guys are going to get to come along with us uh, and see how California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team does, conducts their investigations. So uh, so there's going to be extra bonus for that. Just like over at our Patreon site, um, any pre-recorded show is now being shown over there a week to two weeks in advance of airing over here on this end. And uh, I think it's a cool deal. And I actually have two more to fix today to edit down. And then they're going to be placed over at the Patreon. It's five fifty a month. But you get that. Plus, you're going to, like, maybe I can get Gary back on over there for a Q&A. I'll, I'll talk to him about that, too. Just a little Q&A for you guys to ask, to ask him questions directly. Like a little chat thing. So we're going to start doing that. And Nancy Mass is going to be the first one that comes over there and does that. So there are a lot of benefits to that Patreon. And plus, once we get to a certain number of subscribers, we're, I'm going to go ahead and do some giveaways. Okay, you'll get some cool California Haunts merch. Okay, well, I want to thank everybody again for coming. And I'm going to show you uh, Gary's information and how to get a hold of him. And, uh, yeah, I will see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. So here we go. Here's his information. Who's got the button? There we go. Okay, the, the book is non-human. Like I said, it's really a cool book. I've read parts of it. And his websites are ufotruthmagazine.co.uk and proof, P-R-U-F, uh, P-R-U-F, 
OS Police Database. .co.uk. And of course, that book can be purchased at Amazon. Okay, guys, I will see you tomorrow, 5 p.m. Pacific. Have a great rest of your day. And for the ones that are that are watching this this evening, have a great evening. See ya.